Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening, or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're exploring the client experience of eating disorder treatment, how it really goes, with a guest who has lived and written about it herself, Bronwyn Clark. Bronwyn is a Los Angeles-based therapist and author of Don't Be Weird, a memoir of food and feelings, which follows her journey through treatment and toward eating disorder recovery. We so appreciate you joining us, Bronwyn. We're thrilled to have you with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, we're really excited to learn about your experience in treatment um, and, of course, the, the reflections you share in your memoir about the time. But can you get us started with just a brief backstory, maybe a bit about your eating disorder and the circumstances that led you into treatment? Yeah, so I grew up in North Carolina. Both my parents were doctors, and yet neither of them picked up on the fact that as a kid, I had really bad depression, anxiety, OCD, because they weren't manifesting physically as symptoms. Um, I think my depression started in elementary school, and it kind of, I was just bored all the time with everything. I had anxiety. I, I got sick every day before school. And I started detaching pretty much from the academic experience. I still did well in my classes, but nothing really seemed to click on a deeper level. And friendships weren't that satisfying. So all throughout elementary school and middle school, I struggled with severe OCD to the point where I was clawing my scalp, essentially, just to get the demons out until my scalp was bleeding. And my family was like, oh, it's so cute. She has demons again. And they made a joke out of it. And so I didn't get diagnosed until when I was in my 20s. But sometime in high school, I was able to sort of get a grip on my OCD and all that energy that I was channeling into compulsions and rearranging and checking things got redirected through food. I didn't purposefully start restricting. I don't even remember it happening. It just sort of faded into my life. I just started eating less and less and becoming very ruled about my food. Like at four o'clock, that was when I could have an apple and it was the highlight of my day. It was like the best time and I could make that apple last for an hour and a half. Like I would cut it into tiny pieces and it just became, it didn't seem weird to me at the time. It was just like, this is my new normal. And then when I went to college, that was really just like a black hole. Like, I don't remember much of it. I was so depressed and lonely and chronically sad that everything got worse. My eating disorder, which I didn't know I had, my depression, and still nobody really knew. My parents didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. I hadn't formed any friendships, really, because I was just isolating in my room, being eating disordered and sad. Um... But it was only when I moved out to Los Angeles to pursue screenwriting that I finally got a therapist. I thought just for depression. I was very unhappy with everything. I was living my dream job. I was a writer on a show, but I was miserable. And when I met with that therapist, she took one look at me. We did a brief five-minute talk, and she looked at me and said, you have a serious, serious, serious eating disorder. And that was like the lights were turned on. I was like, what? What are you talking about? And she told me, I refuse to work with anyone who I think is going to die. And you have to gain one pound by next week. Otherwise, I won't work with you. So that was the first awareness I had that I had an eating disorder. And so I 
worked with her for a year and a half. I refused at that point to go into treatment. I thought I could do it on my own. And I was able to gain some weight working with her and a dietitian. As I was gaining weight, that was when the purging entered my life. And it was a you know, response to gaining weight and feeling like I didn't deserve to eat. Like this was way too much. I'm not lovable enough to be eating all of this nourishing food. So I had to do what I could to get rid of it. And I thought that way I was meeting everybody's wants. Like I was eating the food my therapist told me, but I was also satisfying my eating disorder by not keeping it. And that became, it got to a point where my organs were not doing so hot. And it finally got to a point where I was like, okay, I need to go to treatment. So that was when I packed my little suitcase, went to a little house in Malibu and really started this process of recovery, like 100%. That's awesome. How, um, you know, a couple of things strike me about the, when you said that the eating disorder just sort of faded into your day. I think that's a really common experience, right? People don't say like, yep, this was the day it started often. It's just sort of, I just was there at some point. So just wanted to highlight that. A question for you in terms of like, at this point, what did you know about eating disorder treatment? Like, what did you think about it? What did you think might happen? What did you think it was all about? Um, Can you tell us about that? I knew nothing about it. I had pictures of Girl Interrupted in my head. I was like, I'm going to be sent to a hospital. I'm going to be monitored. There's going to be video cameras. Like I had this crazy Hollywood informed idea of what treatment might be. And it was nothing at all like that. It was a house. It felt like a family. There's a backyard with like a swing. It was, I wish I had known what it would have been like. I would have gone much sooner. I wouldn't have waited a year and a half. I wouldn't have gotten as sick as I did. There's not enough information out there on what it's actually like. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is just because so many people probably have similar misconceptions of what treatment looks like. And that's such a deterrent to actually seeking help that it's really risky and dangerous. Yeah. And there's so few, there's so few media depictions of what treatment actually looks like, like really actually looks like. So tell us a little bit about the first couple days of treatment when you go into this new place, probably with lots of feelings. What was that like? It was pretty mind-blowing. I drove myself there. I didn't have anybody to drop me off. So I parked my car at the foot of the driveway, rolled my suitcase up. And the second I got in, I felt embraced. I was hugged by people I didn't know. And I was like, okay, well, that's weird. But the thing that really threw me off was I had to go to the bathroom. I drove all this way to Malibu and I had coffee that morning and I really had to go to the bathroom and someone had to go with me and I had to be watched as I went to the bathroom and it was awkward and I couldn't go. And that's what the first chapter is, is like this battle to like surrender to both bodily urges and to the idea of treatment. And so the first few days, there's always a new tension in the house when a new person enters the milieu. And I felt like I was being appraised, you know, What's my eating disorder? Am I an anorexic? Am I bulimic? You know, there are those labels that people like to give each other, even if that's not your identity, you're not your diagnosis. But there was definitely competition, it felt like at the beginning. Like, like am I going to just eat my food regularly or am I going to make a fuss about it and show that my eating disorder is really strong? It's not just this passing fad. And so 
as wonderful as it was to be around these new women who were going through the same thing, who had similar struggles, who could relate to why it was terrifying to eat a granola bar in big bites or, or not peel it apart to eat the chocolate chips first or whatever. Like people who got that and spoke my language, but also it was so hard to sit at a table of eating disorders and be surrounded by eating disorders all the time because we triggered each other. There was, that was unavoidable. There was no way not to trigger each other. Um, so meal times were hard naturally the first week or so, but everything else about residential, as soon as I got there, I was home. There was, I never knew my love language was physical touch until I was there and I started getting hugs every day. I started, you know, sitting with people on the couch and we would be like tangled up in the blankets just because we're so exhausted from the process of recovery. And I was overwhelmed by all of the food. I had never done three meals, three snacks ever, I don't think in my life. And having to come back to the table every two hours to eat something else was, it was painful at first. Like my stomach couldn't handle it. I was uncomfortable. There's actual physical pain and like gastrointestinal distress because of all the food I was based. It felt like I was waterboarding myself with calories and we had to eat beyond what like a normal, healthy, whatever you want to call it person would eat because we were in such a deficit. Um, And it was exhausting. I remember my jaw hurting because I was chewing so much and really hard to get used to. And all the, the, the variety of food, I had pretty much eaten the same meal every day for the past several years. And so having all these new foods, pastas and pizza and burgers and quinoa and like all these other delicious things and waffles that I'd never let myself have for so long. It was, it was like trying them again for the first time and remembering that, oh yeah, this actually tastes good. And I like this and why haven't I been eating it? What have I been thinking? (laughs) (laughs) How you, you eventually come to um, describe treatment, I guess, somewhat ironically as a place of freedom. Can you tell us what you meant by that? I think treatment allowed me to meet myself again for the first time and to experience myself fully in a way that wasn't filtered through this lens of anorexia or purging or depression. Um, I was able just to try out new things and reconnect with hobbies I liked or like allow myself to sit outside in the grass and read a book and let that be okay and not force myself to be productive. I had in Hollywood, it's all about hustling. The next thing you're writing, the next network, meeting you're going to the next person you're schmoozing and and treatment like no one cares about that you don't even have to wear makeup or you can wear your pajamas all the time and I think that freedom of not having to present myself according to someone else's expectations or these standards set by society that are complete bullshit like that freedom to be myself authentically as I wake up in the morning was so liberating um and I think freedom in the sense of feeling my emotions like I hadn't cried before I went into treatment, I hadn't cried for at least a decade. I was just so numb to everything. And at times it was great to be numb because I didn't feel the sadness. I didn't feel the anger or the disappointment or the anxiety, but I didn't get to feel the good feelings either, the happiness, joy, connection, warmth. And I think the first day I cried, I remember we had a thing about reading our horoscopes every day at the table. And mine was in some way related to water. 
And then later that day, it was the first day I cried. It was eight weeks into residential. And it was a bit like everybody was like, oh my God, she's crying. Like what's happening? And I don't know what's happening, but now I cry, not all the time, but I have no reservations against it. And being able to feel my emotions and being able to tap into that human experience of feeling was liberating and enabled so much more connection and authentic revelations about myself that were not there before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that that experience of um, of starting to feel the feelings can be really overwhelming in itself. Yeah. I imagine that was a, a bit of a journey and some growing pains maybe there in the same way as feeling the food in your body, feeling all those feelings in your body. Uh, thoughts about that? Do you have a description you can share with us about that? Uncomfortable. Even if it's a good uncomfortable, it's just like it's different. Like, why am I feeling this weird warmth in my upper stomach? Like, did I eat something bad or is this joy? Like, <laughs> I don't get it, but learning to be okay with that and just to bring mindfulness to the tingles, the flushes of heat, the squirminess of my stomach when I'm anxious, like noticing all of that and using it as information about myself and being able to connect that to what's going on in the outside world and to feel more integrated in my environment and to be living more fully is so worth it. And that numbness was just, I never want that again. Yeah, some people I've heard describe eating disorders as as illnesses of disintegration, and that recovery is all about integration, which I personally find a valuable perspective in terms of like, yeah, that makes sense to me. And I I think it it just generally makes a lot of sense for what the brain is doing in terms of when we look at the brain science. There's an enormous amount of disintegration in the brain that we can we are starting to learn about with all of the cool neurobiology research. And recovery involves a lot of reintegrating of those circuits. So they actually connect, which makes those feelings make more sense and yeah. connect the body and the feeling. All right, that's, that's a fabulous, your, your explanation is a, a fabulous lived experience of like, oh, that's what the brain science says happens. And it, it feels like that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges of, of treatment. Um, particularly for people who might be struggling with dual diagnosis or the eating disorder and something else. You started at an eating disorder treatment center, but then moved to a program that focused more on your other primary diagnoses, uh, your diagnosis of depression. Can you share a little bit more about that experience? It was painful. It was the way it was handled was kind of traumatizing. I had spent seven months between residential, PHP, and IOP in the same eating disorder program with a lot of the same people, therapists who knew each other, dietitians who talked all the time. And then I arrived one day and there was like a contingent of administration, my therapist, my dietitian, and they pulled me aside and I'm like, you're going to start at a new program tomorrow. And it's not for eating disorders, it's for depression. And I got the message that I was too much to handle, basically. My depression was too much for this eating disorder treatment center. So I was being shunted, it felt like, off to this mood disorder treatment program. But they didn't even do vitals. They didn't do weights. They didn't have meals together. There was no food support. And I, my first day, I was at lunch. They're like, okay, come back in an hour. And I had a panic attack. I was like, okay, what do I do? And I ended up sitting outside punched behind a dumpster crying because I didn't understand what I was supposed to be doing. And I didn't understand why nobody seemed to care. 
Like it was a big deal for me to be all of a sudden on my own for lunch and no one acknowledged that. And I ended up calling my old treatment center and just being like, I don't know what to do. What do I do? And having a therapist walk me through it and remind me that, yeah, I do know what to do. Go find a subway or a restaurant down the street and get food and meet all my food requirements and then go back to program. But it was really hard because at first I was an anorexic with depression. At this new place, I was a depressive with anorexia. And that shift in identity was in some ways eye-opening because I saw how much my depression was really influencing my anorexia and was really hampering my ability to recover because like, yes, I could eat the food, but if I have no desire to have this life that I'm living, what's the point of eating the food if I'm ambivalent about staying alive? But it was also frustrating because I was being told that, oh, your eating disorder is not, not a big enough deal for us to keep you here and to monitor your weight and to make sure your heart is okay. And it felt like my life was sort of downgraded to being not important. So I had to make it important for myself and I had to fight for myself. And at one point I was seeing eight professionals, eight therapists at a time for different problems. And that was exhausting, but it was the only way I could make sure that I was being held accountable for my food. I had an outside eating disorder specialist who I met with three times a week. I had an outside dietitian I met with twice a week. I had a life coach that I had my OCD therapist. I had a DBT therapist. I had family therapy anxiety there. It was just all over the place. And I was finally getting everything addressed, but it felt so disorienting and so separate that it was hard to integrate everything fully in a way that would have been really helpful. And so that's why as a therapist myself, I want to specialize in the crossover between eating disorders and extreme mood disorders so that people don't get kicked out of treatment because they're too OCD and take four hours to make a piece of toast. I want to be someone who can be able to do that together with them and not have them bouncing between programs, between therapists, and that traumatizing experience of sort of being abandoned in the midst of your recovery when you still don't really know which way is up. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it sounds like a couple of things struck me. The, the first one you were telling the story about crying behind the dumpster about lunch, that absolutely, how, how, how do you know? And, and the beautiful thing about your therapist being able to help you remember you do know, uh, but it struck me that you were crying behind the dumpster, right? That, that's, that in itself is some odd win in a way that you were able to access that feeling to know what you, a little bit more about what you were feeling and then to reach out for help. Yeah. And then I was at this mood disorder program for seven more months, but it got to the point about four or five months in, like I wasn't maintaining my weight. I was having a hard time I was pulled aside by my therapist and said, if you don't gain weight, you're going to have to go to eating disorder treatment. And I had become so attached to my team and my peers. And I had to do this crunch time. And the psychiatrist there who had no bedside manner, he told me gain X amount of pounds. I don't want to say the numbers because I know that can be triggering in a week, but it was not humanly possible, even for like a competitive eater who gorges on hot dogs. Like I could not gain that amount of weight in a week. And it just felt so, it was like he was encouraging me to develop or to re-engage with an eating disorder behavior that I didn't have before, binging, but just try it out. And he said, I don't care if you have to binge to get there, you need to do it. So there was always this like very thin line of, am I too depressed 
for eating disorder treatment and my two anorexic for depression treatment, who was going to keep me and who was going to help me make it through. And I ended up being able to stay. I worked really, really hard. I also was able to plead my case to my team to keep me and they ended up letting me stay. That was a hard time, but also made me really buckle down and be like, I have to do this for myself. No one's going to hold my hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I think a lot of people sort of have that like in the beginning of treatment or the beginning when somebody says to them, I think you need help. They're like, no, I want to do this myself. I just want to do it myself. And uh, I know I said that. No, I'll do it myself. And, and I, I try to circle around with that and say, great, I'm glad you want to do this by yourself because at the end of the day, we all get left with ourselves to talk to and think about and think with and that we have to use a lot of inner fortitude and a lot of uh, our, our own selves to make this happen. And it really works better when there's somebody else there with you or lots of somebody else is there with you to coach you and cheer you on and help you and be there to, to cry with and all of that. So it's a it's an interesting battle in a way of how much do you do yourself and and what's the the way that that happens. How about um how about moving between levels of care? So in eating disorder treatment you were in residential and in PHP and IOP and then in in your treatment for depression and various levels of care. What can you say about moving between those levels of care? It's hard when you go from 24-hour support and accountability to seven hours of support to two hours of support. And I ended up bouncing back between PHP and IOP based on how I was doing. Like I didn't end up being able to stay in outpatient, intensive outpatient for very long because I needed the higher level of care. And maybe, like, maybe you need residential again. I was like, no, I can do it. I can do it. But coming out of residential into this world that hadn't stopped into Los Angeles of all places where you see billboards of actresses and models and people, the diet culture here is rampant. And just stepping back into that and having to maintain the same mentality that I was able to foster in residential and stay on course for recovery, it was really hard. And obviously, like, I didn't do so great doing that. Um, Not having, like, I had to go grocery shopping on my own. And that was it ended up being like a two hour ordeal, just like picking a box of cereal. It's like, okay, I don't, I need someone to be here with me right now to help me pick this out. And I needed to not linger over the apple bin for an hour, picking out the ones that were perfect with no bruises. Like I had, it was just all of this expectation responsibility that people in residential were taking care of for me, like food magically appeared in it, but it doesn't do that in the real world. There's no like genie who's just going to bring you a plate of pasta like you have to I had to do that and then it was wonderful having an IOP and PHP co-ed like in residential they're pretty much exclusively all women still um, just based on who's seeking treatment there's a lot of shame for men around eating disorders but having men in my PHP program was so rewarding and so like those are the strongest men I've ever met, the ones who could admit that they needed help. And that experience was life-changing. But the different levels of care, it is a lot of the times based on what your insurance is willing to cover, which is bullshit because they use things like BMI and like unrelated things to decide who deserves what treatment. But it also shifting between the levels tells you 
sort of sends a message of like, okay, we don't care about you as much right now because you're an IOP and you're supposed to be able to do your stuff on your own. We're not going to check in with you. We're not going to make sure you're going on the right path. And it feels, for me at least, there was a feeling of abandonment every time I got shifted down. And I think that was contributing to why I was having a hard time. Like I wanted to be back in those levels of care where people were really showing up for me. And so I'm sure that played into why behaviors came back and restricting so that I lost weight so that I needed more help. And it was a very manipulative way of my eating disorder to ensure that I was getting all the love and nurturance and support I could. Keeping me sick equals care, but that was twisted and that doesn't actually make sense in the real world. Like you don't have to be sick in order to have people love you. That was so integrated in the shifting of levels and wanting to stay cared for, wanting to stay protected. But freedom, being able to drive my car was great. Um, Being able to sleep in my own bed and to have control of my kitchen, which yes, is very risky for eating disorders, but it's also just like, I can stock what I want. I don't have to eat bananas if I hate bananas. That freedom again was very nice. And I carried with me a lot of the menus that residential offered. And I was able to start making things on my own and proving that I could do that and that it's okay if I did that. I didn't have to earn it. I think that was helpful. What do you think about, um, like right now, we're in this incredible time, right? And so a lot of people are stepping from residential into, into PHP, but into telehealth PHP, where their interaction on site is, is limited. They're coming in for weights and vitals and different things, but, but more or less uh, with these stay-at-home orders, people are at home. What do, you, what do you think that would be like and any advice you have for people in that sort of switching level of care moment that we're in at this current time? I personally can't imagine how difficult it is. And I have so much empathy and admiration for the people who are still staying focused and staying on track and doing their best to make this recovery last. I know even for me, who's a few years into recovery, going to the grocery store and having the alternative to my alternative out of stock, is still, it throws me through a loop. And so people who are now having to go stock their fridges and their pantries on their own and not being able to even have access to maybe the safe foods that they had in residential and having to be flexible and improvise and buy something that maybe they never even had and probably would never buy in a regular like healthy world. Um, that just sounds so hard. And the whole virtual, that distance, for me, physical touch and hugs and being in rooms with people and being able to feel vibes off of people and to read the room and feel like there was a place I was going to recover, as opposed to being stuck in a place where I was sick and still trying to recover. Like the environment really does help. Like I, if I had gone home out of residential and had to do everything virtually, I don't think I would have made it very far because I was still in a place, my room had, it was still as dirty as I left it. It was still filled with like discarded diet soda cans. And like, this was a place I was very sick and this is not a place of recovery. So having that place every day to go physically be at and be surrounded by people who are supporting me was monumental and helping me make progress. And so for the people who are trying to do this at home, with triggers, if they're at home with people who, like family, who might have been an impetus to develop an eating disorder, like that's a whole new level of hard that I didn't have to deal with. Uh, Advice would just be to find connection however you can. FaceTime with 
peers that are in program, like reach out to therapists that you have, listen to as many podcasts as you can watch. Don't watch triggering shows on Netflix. Just try to surround yourself with as much positivity as possible and hold out hope that this won't be forever. I know eating disorders and cognitive distortions go hand in hand and it's especially coming fresh out of residential or going into PHP. Those must be amplified so much right now. I think connection, that's what I've been doing. I'm still struggling. You know, I have thoughts that come up naturally, either depression or eating disorder. And the way I fight it is connection. And that has been probably the biggest component of my healing. And so just tap into that however you can. Adopt a dog like I did. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, I think think you're right. I think connection is the Part of the magic that happens in recovery generally. In these times, it's uh, it's a little harder to, to get and a, a lot different than we're used to, I think is really important. Yeah. And then online, like everyone's quarantined at home and like a good portion of the population is terrified of the COVID-15 or they're promoting at-home workouts or make sure you're staying active or make sure you're not eating junk. And like, that's hard for people with eating disorders who may feel like, they're doing the wrong thing by trying to stick to their recovery. And the message is that even well-meaning friends who have been there for support, they don't realize that they're perpetuating by their Instagram stories or their, I went on an eight mile run today, look at me, and now I get to eat a donut. Like the way that it's conflated, the morality of food and exercise is conflated, especially in this time, it's just compounding any issues that were already there. And it's so hard for people logging on to social media, trying to find connection to be bombarded with, weight loss, exercise routines, workout, whatever. It's extra hard for those people right now. The the epidemiologist part of my brain wonders if after after we're further down the road and we look back at data from this time, we'll see a a, a significant impact on the development of eating disorders or eating disorder behavior because of the concentration of those messages. Those messages are always there in some form, right? But the, the extreme concentration of them now for people I have a hard time believing that won't be really influential on people. Not an uplifting thought, I know. Uh, So let's switch to a little bit more uplifting. Uh, What advice do you have for people considering treatment now? Somebody's at home and and in these times of of the pandemic, it's a little different. But just generally, you, you probably know that feeling of being at home and wondering if you should do something or people telling you you should probably do something or worrying about you. What advice do you have for people considering getting treatment? And the second part of that, is there there anything anything else you wish you would have known uh, before your first day of treatment? For those at home considering, like, is it worth it? Do I need it? What is it even going to look like? I would just say, do it. It's the best gift you'll ever give yourself therapy in any form, even if all you can manage, like all your insurance is going to cover is a therapist session. Do it. Because... It'll open so many doors. You'll learn about yourself in so many new ways and find so much depth to your experience that you won't get just being at home debating. I even got my dad who was, he's like, I don't ever need therapy. I told him, you need therapy. It's the best gift you'll ever give to yourself. He's been in therapy now for a year and a half and it's his favorite day of the week, his favorite hour. He loves his therapist. He made me meet his therapist when I went home for Christmas. He's he can't believe how life-changing it's been for someone who didn't even think he had problems. So if you're someone who knows, you obviously do have a, you're struggling with 
food, you're struggling with anxiety, body image, depression, OCD, do it. Just surrender and trust that if all else fails, if it doesn't work, you at least gave yourself the opportunity to meet yourself again and to get support and to realize that there are others out there like you. You're not alone in your eating disorder. You're not the only one going through this. There are people who can understand everything. And those are the connections, the friendships that last. And I'm still in touch with, we call them soul sisters. Like we still talk regularly. We still support each other and check in and applaud each other when there's a triumph, even if that triumph is, hey, I ordered barbecue today. Like I've never done that before. And I think depriving yourself of the opportunity to form that community around recovery is going to keep you isolated. It's going to keep you stuck and likely will just lead to a worsening of whatever problems you're already experiencing. And in terms of what do I wish I had known going in? Wow, so many things. Like I wish I had a, I knew that it wasn't, it's not prison. I mean, I call it food jail in my book because you can't leave and you get locked in your bedroom and like you're forced to eat. But like, it's the complete opposite of incarceration. You're free in such a liberating mental, emotional way. Um, it's a wonderful experience. It helped me to appreciate the little things in life. Like every Friday night we went to Rite Aid and I never thought much of Rite Aid. And it was like, I would never go there unless I need band-aids, but I could now probably furnish my entire apartment, decorate it, entertain myself for hours with stuff I found at Rite Aid. And like, I would never have had that opportunity. And there's so much discovery that you can get in treatment that that's the only place you can really allow yourself to get it because you're removing yourself from your triggers. You're removing yourself from society and like all the standards and expectations put on you by other people. And you're put in a place where the only thing expected of you is to eat and connect with yourself. And you don't get that opportunity in life ever like forced isolation i mean this quarantine is one thing but to be isolated in a place that is designed to help you survive is so different and so comforting and so warm trust and surrender and just let yourself be yeah, beautifully put where can our listeners find you and get a copy of your book don't be weird don't Be Weird is available on Amazon. And I have a pretty lively Instagram, Be For Boundless, which is also my Twitter handle. I love to engage with people, share posts, share stories on those platforms. And I have a website. It's weird to have a website, but it's just bronwynclark.com. And that's another way to reach out to me if you want to or further the discussion on any topic about recovery. Great. Do you have a, have you thought about what it would be, what would be cool to hear about your book? Like what would be one of those moments you're like, oh, that was cool. If somebody were to tell you about what your book did for them. I think it would be the support people. Like if a parent was able to say like, I had no idea what my daughter or my son was going through. Like I thought it was about body image and it's not, it's so much deeper than body image and there's all this stigma around it. People think it's a diet gone wrong or a choice, but if like parents, sisters, friends, brothers, teachers, coaches could read it and understand like, holy shit, this person 
is going through so much just to eat breakfast. And like, it is literally a life or death struggle for them every single day. I think having that would be life changing because as much of a problem as it is for people to get treatment, it's so much harder to get the support to get treatment. If people think, oh, you don't really have a problem, you just don't eat your food, just go eat a sandwich. That's not helpful. That's not accurate. That's not in any way supportive or what a person needs. And I hope people, maybe people will read it and be like, oh, treatment doesn't sound that scary. I can do it and go seek help. I think that would be really powerful. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at EMILY program. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.